All right. So this semester, uh, we are going to, we won't be able to go through it exhaustively, meaning we're not going to be able to put our eyes on every verse of this book, um, but we'll try to go through it representatively uh, through some of the headings they talked about, um, and then we'll go down in detail on a few of them more than others. Let me start us by um, kind of drawing us into this thought. What is it about being near to famous people that gets us all excited, that gets us moved and, and, and wanting to do that? It's the whole phenomenon behind the, behind the red carpet. Maybe you watched the Golden Globes the other night. Maybe you'll watch uh, the Emmys coming up. It's, it's that phenomenon behind sporting events. And why fans will rush to be near the tunnel when the players run out. Or while they'll, they'll pay all kinds of money to be courtside or, or ringside or, or next to the field or behind the dugout so they can get close. Or while they'll go after the game near the, the exit of the locker room on the way to the bus just so they can be near to these athletes, their idols, their heroes. Uh, we want to be close. We want to be near to them. When I was in high school, some friends and I, uh, we skipped school one day because that was a thing you could do back then without too many repercussions. There weren't automatic phone services that would call your parents and tell them you're out of school. So two buddies of mine and I, we skipped school from Duncan, Oklahoma. We got in our cars and drove three hours to this place called Tulsa. And we went to a professional golf tournament. It was the tour championship being held at Southern Hills right down on Lewis Avenue. And the Tour Championship was a super cool golf tournament because only the top 30 players in the world are invited to play in it every year. So it is the best of the best. I was a big golfer, so these are my people. I'm not sure that you want them to be your people, but they were my people. And so we drive three hours to Tulsa, and as we start rolling in, it is raining like Noah's days. It is raining, raining. And when we get to the golf course, by 9 o'clock that morning, they had it had rained so hard already that they had canceled the tournament for the whole day. And so we were bummed, rightly, but we had a plan. We were going to go to the hotel where the players were staying, and we were going to catch them on their way back in and be those annoying fans. And so that's what we did. But we weren't the only ones with that idea. So we drove to the Doubletree Hotel at 61st and Yale, and we walked into the lobby with about 2,000 of our best friends. So that was disappointing also, but I had a plan. What Brent Corbin decided to do was to sneak off to the side near the elevator bank and hide around the corner, and after the golfers made it through the myriads of poor people who weren't getting that close... Over toward the elevators, I would pop out around the corner, jump on the elevator with the golfer and his caddy alone, and we would take a ride up to the third floor, the 15th floor, whatever it may be. I was getting near. I was right up in their business, y'all. But here's the thing. I did not know what to do. No clue. I was as near as I could possibly be, and I had no clue what to do. So those elevator rides looked like this, all of them. Hey. Hey. Okay, see ya. <laughs> Twice out of like four hours of doing this did I ask someone for something. So I got a golf ball from VJ Singh and I got a glove from Tom Lehman. They both used to be big deals in the golf world, not so much anymore. I didn't know what to do. I got so close, I didn't know what to do. 
Well, as this video began to show, after the garden, after this time when mankind had the immediate, unfettered, personal presence of God, after mankind rebelled against God and said, we don't want to do what you want to do, we want to do what we want to do, God sent them away from His presence. They were no longer near to Him. Near to him. And what we begin to see that begins at that point in Genesis 3 and begins to unfold is, is this the answer to this question, how does man get back in the presence of God? How can a sinful humanity come back into the presence of a holy God? And that is the question that the Bible unfolds and answers over the entire arc of human history, culminating in the person and work of Jesus. But we're not to Jesus yet. We're still back up toward the beginning of Leviticus. So, we go through the book of Genesis, and it begins to introduce this idea of a family that the video talked about. That Abraham's family would be the means by which people would come back into God's presence. Then it goes to Leviticus, and it talks about how God delivers this people who had been enslaved in Egypt. He delivers them out of Egypt, promises them a land that they would inhabit one day. Right? And then, out there in the wilderness... God tells Moses that the next step in me being close to you and you being near me is that you're going to have to build me a tent where we can meet. A tabernacle, which just means a tent of meeting. And the video talked about it. But at the end of Exodus, the book of Exodus culminates with the construction of this tent, of this tabernacle. And once Moses has finished the construction of it through the workers... God comes near to His people and it says at the end of Exodus chapter 40 that His glory fills the temple. God's presence comes back into the midst of the people. So that's where Exodus ends. And friends, Leviticus starts right after that. And what it's answering, what the the whole book of of Leviticus is answering is this. So now that God is here in this way, what do we do? How do we get near to Him? He's drawn near to us. How do we get near to Him? How do we come into His presence? And this book answers that for us. And I hope as you come week after week, or as often as you're able, if you can't come, we put them on podcast, that you will see that the, Levit- the book of Leviticus, far from being some antiquated, out there kind of book, is immensely important to understanding who Jesus is and why He came to do what He did. So we're going to start reading it right now together. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, On the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire that is on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, ring ring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let me pray real quick for us before we go any further. Father, uh, this is your word. And you tell us that the grass withers and the flower falls, but not your word. You tell us that it stands forever. So would you now help us to understand it so that we may apply it rightly to our lives uh, for our good, for your glory, and for the good of this world. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to try to ask, present, and answer two questions tonight from this passage. The first one is this. Why pay attention to this book? Why pay attention to and study the book of Leviticus? And secondly is... What? What is the second question? Oh, why sacrifice? There it is. So why pay attention first? This book is old. It's really old. It's thousands of years old. As you just read right there, seemingly it has nothing to do with our world. Unless you live some kind of weird life right now, that should be strange to you, what we just read. So why are we going to take a semester and try to dig into this book and to see what's here? Why read a book that has all these confusing commandments? It tells us to avoid shellfish, to not wear clothing that has two different kinds of material, uh, to avoid homosexual practice. How in the world does this book have anything to do with our life today? And furthermore, hasn't Jesus changed all of this? Hasn't he done away with all of this law stuff? Well, it's because those questions are are there that we're going to look at it. Look, it it doesn't take much, um, whether you are yourself a skeptic of Christianity or whether you've interacted with people who are skeptical of Christianity. It doesn't take long or take much of those conversations before at some point the conversation will probably devolve into a discussion about the book of Exodus. Because it, it seemingly is so random and arbitrary that it, it kind of undoes, supposedly, the message of Christianity. And we begin to think, well, if, that, if, if the Christians that I know are holding up this book as part of the Bible, and they're saying that you've got to trust what's in here, then that at least makes God seem mean or, or implausibly uh, uh, believable. Or it makes him just wholesale other and out there and cruel. So at best, through the book of Leviticus, it raises a lot of questions about who God is. Why would he uh, bring up these laws? Why would he do some of these these things? So why are we going to pay attention to it? 
Because, as I've mentioned just briefly, I believe that in this book, there are two things in particular that we see. The first is that in this book of Leviticus, we pay attention because of what verse 1 says. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Why pay attention? Because right out of the gate, it says that God is speaking. You may not believe that that's okay. But at least means we ought to pay attention. Because not as it just here in verse 1. 56 times in the book of Leviticus, it says that the Lord said to Moses. Leviticus contains more of God's words than any other book of the Bible. Direct quotation, direct recording of what God said than any other book of the Bible. So again, I'm not pretending to think that you already believe that or that you submit yourself to that. I'm just saying, if you want to know something about God and how He's revealing Himself to the people back then and what that might mean to us today, then Leviticus should be interesting to you. It's worth paying attention. So God reveals a lot about Himself. And so what I hope we see in that is that as the semester unfolds, um, If you're skeptical of Christianity, I hope that we can make a case that this book, which maybe has seemed so aloof and far off and unimportant, if not downright cruel, is actually not maybe what you thought it was. And if you're already convinced of Christianity in the Bible, I hope that this study will deepen your confidence in Scripture as God's very Word. So that's the first thing. The second thing of why we should pay attention is that... We pay attention, we should pay attention because Jesus did. Because Jesus did. Look, if Jesus was a hipster in 2017, actually hipsters are kind of not a thing anymore, like 2014. And if you would have gotten a tattoo, it would have said this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that comes from the book of Leviticus. It was Jesus' favorite verse. It was what he quoted the most. So Leviticus was on Jesus' mind, but really it goes even a little further than that. Listen to what one scholar said, and I think I put it on your bulletin, but I've got it up on the screen, if not. It says, the gospel of Jesus, which presumes a knowledge of sacrifice and atonement, of law and grace, of sin and obedience, of defilement and cleansing, of priesthood and temple curtains. The gospel of Jesus makes little sense without Leviticus. Leviticus serves as a preliminary sketch of the masterpiece that was to be unveiled in Christ. And Derek Timdall would go on to say, Without Leviticus, our Christian experience would be a house without a foundation. So we pay attention to Leviticus because Jesus did, but also because this book, as it lays out the foundation and framework for who Jesus would be and what he would come to do, it actually points us straight to Jesus. In so many ways. So what's that saying? It's saying we should pay attention. The second thing we need to see in this passage tonight. And tonight's going to be a bit shorter. We showed the video. We've got a lot of announcements. Second thing is just ask the question, why the sacrifices? Why the sacrifices? Why this sacrifice here in particular? And I'll admit tonight I'm not going into super great detail about the burnt offering. Because we're going to go into some more detail in the coming weeks about different sacrifices. But 
The balance of chapter 1 from verse 2 to verse 17 is detailing how to offer what is called a burnt offering, which, as the video showed us quickly, was one of several kinds of offerings that God commands the people of Israel to offer him in the book of Leviticus. So what we see in these verses, I'm not going to reread them, but are these very detailed instructions about the kind of animals to bring. What to do with their blood, how to wash them, what to do with the slaughtered bull or the sheep or the bird, and what to do with its entrails and how to arrange it on the altar. And again, we're going to go into some of that, but I want to focus on this question. Why does Leviticus spend seven chapters talking about these different offerings? Why does he spend so much time talking about it? Because of this. If a holy and pure God is going to draw near to a now sinful people again, then he's going to have to detail out how it is the means by which this drawing near can happen. Let me say that again. If a holy and pure God is going to draw near to a now sinful people again, he is going to have to detail out the means by which this drawing near can happen. So then, in the sacrifices, God is graciously. He did not have to do this, y'all. And so we need to see that this is by grace. God is graciously removing all the obstacles that might hinder their relationship to God. And the sacrifices are this detailed picture of how a sinful humanity can come back and be near a holy God. Sacrifices then were these daily essential reminders as well as the means that allowed people to live joyfully and rightfully in God's presence. And in that day, God wanted them to perform these very physical things, these very physical actions so that He could communicate some of the invisible and ethereal aspects to his being. It, it, it's similar to why if you've been around church today or if you grew up in a church or whatever that may be, it's why churches have what some traditions call sacraments. And usually that's baptism and the Lord's Supper at a minimum. The Catholic Church has a number of others. That's a different discussion. Um, but at a minimum of two, it's this tangible, physical thing we do that is speaking to an invisible truth that is behind them. Okay, and that's what baptism does. That's what the Lord's Supper does. So God is having them do all these things to communicate something about His holiness and their sinfulness and how these can come back together. So in Leviticus, say it this way. The Christian message is given with flesh and blood. Literally. And God is saying this to us. As one pastor puts it and describes it, I'll put it up on the screen. Instead of a treatise on the nature of the kingdom of death and its opposition to the kingdom of life, God instructs people with strange skin diseases to steer clear of the temple where all the people would be so they wouldn't get infected until they're clean. Brilliant. Instead of trying to describe an abstract concept like substitutionary atonement, Leviticus gives instructions on when and where and how to slit the throat of a lamb. The picture of blood spattering on your cloak as the lamb is placed on the fire 
lends vivid imagery to the penalty for sin. The entire sacrificial system becomes one giant prop, a visual aid to explain what it means to be in relationship with the one true God. Look, y'all, we have to admit that most of us have inherited, whether intentionally through a church we grew up in or our parents or, or unintentionally just kind of in our culture, we have inherited either the very message of Christianity or an idea of Christianity that is very disembodied, that is very internal and personal and reflective and private. But the God that we see in Leviticus, who I'm going to argue is the very same God we see in Jesus, He's earthy and He's physical and He is interested in everything from the way people bathed to the little scab you got on your arm from playing in the playground the other day. God is interested in every aspect of our spirituality as well as our physicality. Leviticus paints that picture for us so clear. So why would God choose to do it this way? I have to think it's because one day He would choose to come and be physical with us. That He would one day take Himself out of the invisible, unseeable realm and inhabit our world with a body like ours. That He Himself would incarnate, He would put on flesh and come among us. So what that means is that every page, every image, every command, every weird demand that God makes is intended to show us and to point forward to something about Jesus. It will be our goal and our aim this semester to see what that means. Because friends, what Jesus came to do in His person and work on the cross and in His resurrection is that He came to be God for us. John, we looked at John last semester, right at the beginning of John, He looks at Jesus and He calls Him the very Word of God. Leviticus says in chapter 1, verse 1, that these are the words God speaks. Jesus comes as the Word of God. The full and final picture of who God is and what He's trying to tell us. So Jesus is the Word of God. But He also says, John the Baptist, John records John the Baptist saying, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God. So Jesus would come as both the fulfillment and the final picture of the Word of God but also as the very full and final sacrifice of God to restore a sinful humanity back to a holy God. The book of Leviticus is talking to us about how to get not just back into God's presence, but how to get into His very family. Friends, you don't get closer than that. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day in he had gotten a call from his, um, from his brother last week saying that their mom was very sick. Very sick. And so he got a few things together, made a few arrangements, and he hopped in the car and drove to see his mom some seven or eight hours away. And when he got there, um, he was able to talk with her for a good bit over the next few days. And as he got in her presence, at one point he asked her and said, Mom, do you know how sick you are? And she, not being a woman of many words, as he would say, um, she said, yeah. And as he tells the story, he said, I 
I hadn't really prepared for what I would say after that. So after a little while, he said, well, are you ready? And she said this, I've been getting ready for this day my whole life. And he looked and said, yes, yes, you have. Friends, what are you getting ready for? It's a new year. It's a new semester. So many opportunities on the horizon. Are you getting ready to to have a great semester? Are you going to do better? And some of you need to do a lot better in classes. Are you getting ready for that? Are you getting ready to to make your body look a little different? Maybe put on a little muscle, lose a little weight, eat different? Some of you are ready for that? Some of you are ready to get back in the game on the dating scene. right? Maybe you crashed and burned last semester, but here you are, you're back again, got some new clothes, getting ready for that. Some of you may be getting ready to try to embark on what it might mean to come closer to God, to to get near to God, maybe again, maybe for the first time, maybe you're beginning to kind of explore what that means. And look, I could tell you about those first few, but let me just focus on that last one for a second. If you're at the beginning of this semester and this year, And you want to get ready. You're getting ready to be close to God. You want to be near to Him. I'm telling you, you can't get nearer to Him than Jesus. Everything you hope to get out of being close to God is found in the person of Jesus and what He has done for you. He has graciously come and taken all of your sin, just like those sacrifices we saw on the screen, just like we're going to read about for the next several weeks. He has taken your sin from you, and He gives you His clean bill of health. He gives you His righteousness. He is the perfect, pure, spotless Lamb for an impure people. Jesus is the full and final picture of who God is to you and for you. And if you want to get near to God, You've got to come to Him through Jesus. And Jesus is offered freely to you tonight through this passage. And He'll be here every single week. He's here every day. He is offered to you. Do you need Him? Are you ready to be close to God? Come to Him through Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray and ask that You would give us Jesus this semester. Lord, centuries, millennia after this book was, re- was written, we are still confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, what He came to do. And I pray that over the course of the semester, if not already tonight, that You would show us that He is more beautiful and loving and through that more believable and plausible than we've ever considered, considered Him to be in our whole life. Would You help us to believe that's true? We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.